Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for watching over us. Thank you that you answer our prayers, that you hear us when we pray. God, I ask you now that you take this time, that you strengthen your word. You're our hope and our stay. You're our surety, Christ. There is no other. Blood that we can plead before the throne of heaven. Have mercy on us as sinners. There are lost men here and women and children. God, open their eyes that they might see, their ears that they might hear. Give them hearts of flesh that they might feel and know the very real and present danger that they are in even now. Oh God, if you don't do this, they will fall to the pit of hell to be consumed with your wrath for all of eternity. So God, open their eyes, open their hearts, Give them new hearts. Open their ears that they can hear wonderful things from your law. God, take the words of your son Jesus this morning. Minister them to the saved man's heart that he might know you are not a God that desires to be served as if you need anything. You are the creator of heaven and earth. And all of its fullness is yours. So what can my hands do? profit you nothing nothing help us to believe Jesus when he says the will of my father is that you believe in me help us to believe because without your help we are helpless and hopeless strengthen me God move me out of the way and speak on your own behalf, use me as a donkey and as a mouthpiece and nothing else. Have your way, God, in our congregation this morning. By the precious name and blood of Christ, we do appeal to you. Amen. If you don't have a hymnal in your home, You need one. If you don't have one, I recommend the Trinity Hymnal. It's replete with music that will bring your soul to the throne of Christ. It's got confessions and scripture readings that will put you into the heart of God, the mind of Christ. If you try to study your Bible without first offering praise and prayer, that's like trying to draw water from a well without a bucket. You're reaching down. You can't reach far enough. Every day, every morning, 
our neighbors should hear songs rise from our homes of praise to our great God. For only then will they believe that we believe the words of this scripture. Augustus Toplady wrote this little hymn that has encouraged me this week. A debtor to mercy alone. I don't know how it goes. I was singing and uh, I'm not a musician. Uh, the, the, the training I've had is not, not very replete. I can recognize a few things, but uh, if you've ever sat near me, I believe this. I don't care if you make a beautiful noise or a joyful noise. It ought to be a loud noise. It ought to be a loud noise. You ought to sing as if no one else can hear except Jesus Christ. When we sing these songs, they're useless unless we sing them as offerings to Christ of our love to Him. So I didn't sing this one, but I read it as loud as I could. A debtor to mercy alone of covenant mercy I sing. No fear with your righteousness on my person an offering to bring. The terrors of law and of God with me can have nothing to do. My Savior's obedience and blood hide all my transgressions from view. The work which His goodness began, the arm of His strength will complete. His promise is yea and amen and never was forfeited yet. Things future, nor things that are now, nor all things below or above, can make him his purpose forego or serve my soul, sever my soul from his love. My name from the palms of his hands, eternity will not erase. Impressed on his heart, it remains in marks of indelible grace. Yes, I to the end shall endure as sure as the earnest is given. More happy, but no more secure, the glorified spirits in heaven. Hymns teach us deep doctrine so our songs can be sung correctly and joyfully before His throne. I encourage you, open a hymnal, sing. A man who says his joy is in his salvation but cannot offer a song of praise is a contradiction. I encourage you, sing. Sing. John chapter 6. Really, we're, our text is 28, two little verses, 28 and 29. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. We're in a, really a middle of a, of a passage there's no way to preach the whole passage, 65 verses total. Because really this whole chapter is one big, one big scene. It changes locations a couple of times, 
But it's one story. It's one scene of the ministry of Christ. It began with him feeding the 5,000 men. Probably upwards of 20,000 people total. Men, women, and children. He had them seated in groups. He asked the disciples to how to feed them first and then asked them to go and collect what the people had and all they could find were five loaves and two pickled fish. Five barley loaves, Mark tells us, and that's the poorest of all bread on the earth. It's the leftovers. It was a scrap. It's what the beggars ate. It wasn't very plentiful. Five loaves for 5,000 men. Two pickled fish. If you like sardines, I don't. That might have been your choice. Wouldn't have been mine. Jesus took it. He took it. And the point of the story is not that the little boy brought it. The point of the story is that Jesus Christ can create. Not just out of nothing. But He can take nothing and make something. He makes something of nothing. He multiplied it. He continually fed them until they were full. And I don't know how it works. I've seen it on a movie screen a couple of times, attempted. Not very good, I would think. I don't imagine everybody bowed their head and closed their eyes, and then when they opened their eyes, there was this banquet feast up in front of them. I kind of picture it this way, that Jesus held in one hand the loaves and in one hand the fish, And he held them out and the disciples gathered from his hand and he continued to hold out his hands as they let the people take parts of the bread and of the fish. No matter how small the part, it could not be consumed. As they ate, there was more in their hand. As they took a bite, it never seemed to go away until they were full and they had what they had at the beginning. Still in their hands. And then Jesus said, go take up the fragments and twelve baskets. Not little baskets, not offering plates, as I've heard some preachers talk about when they use this, butcher this text to talk about Sunday offerings. Isn't that silly? Big baskets, bushel baskets left over. And they collected the twelve and they brought it up and I made the comment and I got it from commentaries. I don't know which one. There's no way to know what these baskets were for. I've heard that they represented the tribes of Israel. I've heard they represented the apostles. Although I might have some questions about that. I I don't know why. What or what. All I know is this. That he gave them something. They took something. A little something. And made it. Magnificent. As a matter of fact, if you had walked to the average man or woman in that crowd and said, here's all we got, Ken, is it any, is this, does this count for something? They said, absolutely not. Remember the disciples said, what is this among so many? Jesus has power, supernatural power to take nothing and make something and to take a little something that's count not worthy to be counted and make more than enough. And then the scene changes. The people kind of mill around and Jesus and His disciples slip away and Jesus sends His disciples into the storm. And I told you, 
He not only sent them into the storm because He knew it was there, He sent them into the storm to teach them and train them and discipline them. And He created the storm. And He placed it on the sea. And then He sat at a distance praying to His Father. We don't know what He was praying about all in all. We know His cousin had been murdered. And I'm sure it grieved His heart that John was beheaded. I'm sure that He was praying for His disciples. They probably were in view to Him. They're struggling, rowing, rowing hard, trying to make land with no avail. I don't know what all he was praying, but I know he was before his father praying, interceding, pleading, rejuvenating his spirit, possibly, and then or his flesh. And then he goes down and walks on the water. And we saw that, and people get caught up about Peter getting out of the boat and taking his eyes off Jesus. Listen, Jesus says all needs to be said in John. He walked up and he said, Peace, it is I. It is I. I am. I have arrived. I am. The name of God that was given to Moses at the burning bush is the name that Jesus gave His disciples on the stormy sea. And it's the name He gives you in your struggle. In your turmoil, in your trial, in your tribulation, in your heartache, in your pain. Let me tell you, all your faithful ear wants to hear is, I am. That's all you want to hear. That's all that matters when you're in trouble. And so, He calmed that storm for them after He had created it, after He had tested them, after He had put them in trial. He... Walked to them. He came to them. They could not come to Him, but He came to them. And He assured them with His word, I am, and then He calmed the sea. And then the scene changes again. On the other side of the sea, now it's the next day, and the masses start to show up. And last week we talked about that. They came to seek Jesus for what? Physical bread. And Jesus said, do not labor for physical bread, but rather for the... Bread which comes down from heaven, the eternal bread, the everlasting bread which the Father gives to you. The focus is Jesus in this passage. Do you see it? From beginning to end, it's not about feeding a crowd. It's not about walking on water. It's not about the faith of the little boy or the faith of Peter or the faith of the disciples or the questioning of the multitude. It's about Jesus and Him alone. From beginning to end, it's one large act in the life of Christ. If you were talking about a play, one large act, one large act with a couple of scenes that preach one message, Jesus Christ alone. He alone. And so we come to the end of the part that we looked at last week, the part of this passage there in 22 through 25 and we looked at and 27 we we went through that and we talked through that when they found him you know they they asked the question how did you get here and Jesus commanded them in 27 do not labor for the food that perishes but for the food that endures to everlasting eternal life which the son of man will give to you for him on him God 
The Father has set His seal. And so we come to our passage today. This is the background for Jesus in exchange with these same people now. These people have seen Him feed 5,000. He's walked on the water. Some of them know it probably. Some of them don't. I mean, there was no boats there the day before. They know He didn't get in a boat and come over. They know there was a storm. They know it suddenly ceased. They're figuring these things out in their heads possibly. The disciples know all of this. And then we get this interchange, exchange of words between Jesus and the crowd. What must we do? What must we do? Wrong question. It's the title of my message. Wrong question. The wrong question brings the perfect answer. What must we do? Some of you are asking that question right now as I preach. Carlton, I, I, I hear you. I've, I, I'm listening. I, I just want to know, what do I need to do? What must I do to be doing the works of God? Do you see that? Sounds holy and religious, doesn't it? What must we do? Jesus, to be doing the works of God. Give us an activity with our hands, Jesus. Give us something to occupy our time. To make us look pious. To make us look religious and acceptable and good. Give us something to do, Jesus. So that we can say to our friends, I'm doing the work of God. Wrong question, right answer. Perfect answer. Jesus answers their question. Look at it in 29. This is the work of God. That you believe in Him whom He has sent. You're there in the pew right now. Some of you say, I've been working for God for 30 years. I've been doing the works of God for 30 years. I'm an obedient servant. People think of me As a God follower, I'm a good person. I'm religious. You're like the rich young ruler who said, what else do I need to do? I've kept all these commands from my youth. What do I still lack? You're like the woman at the well in John 4 who had the very gift of eternal life sitting in front of her on the edge of a well talking about living water and she she doesn't even recognize Him. In verse 10, she she doesn't even know who He is. You're that same... You're just like her. You're just like her. You've been asking the wrong question for 30 years, 20 years, 10 years, 5 years. What else do I need to do, God? I've been a good servant. I'm a religious person. I'm acceptable. I do good things. I help my neighbor. I'm a good person. What else? So that I can say that I am good and I do the works of God. What else do I need to do? Just one or two more things? You know, time's running out, Jesus. Tell me what to do. His answer to you is just like it was to the crowd. The work of God is simply this. Believe in Him 
whom the Father has sent. Nothing else. And your heart's response just now was the same as theirs back then. Surely not. You got to be kidding. What about obedience? Nobody's going to enter the kingdom of God without good works, you know. That's foolish, preacher. Well, you, what you're teaching people is going to make them go sin more, you know. You better be teaching them to do righteousness. If you don't, they'll be sinners. If you don't have a law, preacher, people will sin. It's what your heart just said, isn't it? Well, I don't know about you, but you know, for me, I just need the do's and don'ts. That's what I need. Because I know what I need. I know myself better than you do, preacher, maybe. Maybe you're different than me. You can just buy this whole faith business. I need something tangible. You're talking theology. I need practical life. Tell me what to do and not to do with my wife. What to do and not to do with my children. What to do and not to do with my work. Tell me these things. I'll do that. God will love me. And I can enter the heaven of Jesus and be happy for eternity. If you'll just give me the ten do's and don'ts, the twenty do's and don'ts, how many do you want? A hundred? A thousand? How many do you want? And how many times do you want to obey them? Ninety percent of the time? Eighty percent of the time? What will suffice for your heart? What will satisfy you? Religious person in these pews, let me tell you this. The only thing you can do, the only thing that will gain you eternal life is simple, childlike clinging to the person of Jesus Christ. With your heart and soul. That's it. That's it. Preaching righteousness and good works is useless in the face of hell. Satan wants you to believe there's something left to do and you must do it. Because if he gets you to believe that, you'll never cling to Christ and you'll never be saved. And He'll have you for eternity. If you hear nothing else I say today, hear this. You only have hope in Jesus Christ. What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus, the only work of God you can do, children, Jesus would say, is the one work your forefathers wouldn't do in the desert. And so they died. Will you die with them? The Father sent them manna from heaven. Do you not see Him setting His message up? The Father sent them bread from heaven. And they wouldn't trust Him. They wouldn't hold to Him. They wouldn't cling to Him. They wanted some religious thing to do to save themselves. And He rejected them all. And they died in the desert. They never saw the promised land. Not because they weren't good people. The Israelites were good people. Go study the history of the Jews. For the most part, they've been righteous men. Good people by the world's standards. Godly nation. 
in the world's eyes. And yet, that same history will tell you they have not done the only thing they could have ever done for hope and salvation. Believe in the Messiah, the one Jesus would, the one Jesus would be for them. So they died. And Jesus is about to tell this crowd, just like your forefathers ate the manna that came down in the desert which my father gave them, Moses didn't give it to them. Don't blaspheme my father. God gave them that bread. Just like they ate it and they died, you're about to die in the desert because you will not eat the bread and drink the blood of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. So I say to you with all urgency, you say, what's so urgent about this message? What's it really matter about Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday? Well, I want to reverse the question. What do Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday matter if you don't know Christ and Him alone? What do they matter? What must I do to be working the works of God? Believe in Christ. If that answer won't suffice, none will. The work of man will never save. That's what verse 28 tells us. 28a, we see that the natural response is to focus on human ability. Look at verse 28 there at the beginning. What must we do? That's the natural response. That's the response of the prodigal son in Luke 15, 19 in the pigsty there after having squandered his father's inheritance. And as he fed the pigs and even eating the pods, the most filthy refuse of the farm in the pigsty, in the mud, with the hogs, he still had a natural response. What did he say? My father has servants in his home which eat better than this. Let me return to my father and be a servant. Let me go serve my daddy. He'll love me again. And what answer did he get from the father? Oh, daddy, let me serve you. No. Strange response. Never noticed it before. It's because you're a religious person. And you kind of think he's doing the right thing when he gets up and goes to offer be a servant. Actually, it was better than being a prodigal, but it wasn't the right answer. Oh, daddy, let me be a servant in your house. There's humility and brokenness there, but he's still searching for an answer in the wrong place, in himself. Let me serve you. Let me earn your favor, Father. So you'll love me again. And what did the daddy say? With his arms around his neck, kissing him on his neck as he stunk. Can you imagine the smell of this young man? He stunk. He reeked. Just like you do, sinner. You reek before the father's nostrils. And yet He wraps His arms around you in Christ. He kisses you on the neck. And He says, I don't need your service. I want you to be my child. Give Him the robe. Give Him the ring. Give Him a bath. Give Him sandals on His feet. Kill the fatted calf. My son is home. And see, that response right there 
really angers you in your heart, sinner, in your natural state, because you want to earn your righteousness. Don't you? Religious man. That's what you want. So that way when you stand before Jesus, you won't stand naked and empty-handed. You'll have something to give Him. No. He has something to give you. And He gave it. His Son. And His Son gave it. His life. And now all they say to you, sinner, is don't make yourself better. Don't serve me. Don't prove your love for me. Be my child. Come home. Luke 15 tells us our works, our natural works are not enough. The Jews at Pentecost in Acts 2, verse 37, Peter preached that powerful passage that we read there about Jesus Christ crucified. And what was their response? Sirs, what must we do? (laughs) Same response. The Philippian jailer in Acts 16. Remember that story? Some of you do because you're religious people. You've been in church all your life. You know the story. You missed the point. Paul is there in the pit of that prison and all of the other people because Paul told them to stay, stayed. Philippian jailer, sword drawn to his throat, ready to kill himself. Paul said, stop. Don't fear. We're all still here. After I imagine after he got a total and realized that Paul was telling the truth and that his neck wouldn't go on the chopping block the next morning, what did he ask? Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Same question. What must I do? Wrong question. Paul gives the right response. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you and your household will be saved. Natural response. The natural response is to focus on human ability. That's what 28 tells us. After all these miracles, they're still focused on what they can do. Natural response, the natural response is based in pride. It sounds good, but it's pride. You want to pop your suspenders a little. Poke your chest out and say, I serve the Lord. That's a joke. It's a cruel one. You've believed the lie. You've bought Satan's goods. Because see, my God said to Israel in the Psalms, I don't want your sacrifices. All these heifers you've brought before me, all these love offerings and wave offerings, they're meaningless. You can't serve me. Jesus in Mark said, The Son of Man came to serve, not to be served. I serve the Lord. It's a prideful response. 
God does not want our service. And for some of you, that's a reprieve and that's a joyful sound, isn't it? Because you're tired. And you're imagining Jesus and the Father as some scowling judge who's keeping a running total on your good works to see if you're good enough to enter His kingdom. And you got the wrong mentality. you got the prodigal son's mentality. You've got the Philippian jailer's mentality. You've got these people's mentality. Not the biblical mentality. You've got the natural mind, not the spiritual mind. John Piper has called this the debtor's work ethic. It's true. It's, 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 uh, we pride ourselves on work ethic. And don't hear me wrong that you shouldn't be working hard at your job. All you bosses just cringed when I said that. But the debtor's work ethic is a little different, okay? And it goes something like this. And just see if you've ever said this or if you're saying this today in these pews right now. God has done so much for me. Now I just want to do something for Him. You ever, you ever mouth those words? God's been so good to me. I want to repay Him. Will you hold your place where we are in John and flip to Romans 4? And I want to show you lost man first and then saved person. Why that mentality is sin. It's absolute sin. Lost man, this is your passage. You're trying to work to gain righteousness. To be saved. Okay? So, saved person, just read along and say, Boy, that used to be me, but I'm not there anymore. Okay? Romans 4, verse 4. Paul says, Now to the one who works, his due wage is counted as, not as a gift. His wage is counted not as a gift, but as His due. And to the one who does not work, but trust Him who justifies the ungodly, His faith is counted as righteousness. Lost man in the pew. You say, if God gave His Son for me, that being true, I want to earn something. I want to prove to Him. I want to work hard and deserve salvation. You will split hell wide open if you die today with that ethic in mind. I want to pay God back. Because all that you do is debt. It's debt. You're going further and further and further in sin and rebellion. To the one who works, even according to the Mosaic law, to the one who works, it is sin. It's debt. It's a wage. And what are you earning? Romans 6.23 says the wages of your sin is death. It's death. What must we do? If you have that mentality, you have no hope. I said I had, there was a passage for the saved. Galatians. Okay? Flip to Galatians. You might expect this in Galatians. Because Paul is writing to a group of people who though they have been saved, now have returned to the law, 
Galatians chapter 3. This is for you, saved man, who thinks you earn favor with God by doing righteousness. Galatians 3, verses 2 through 3. Let me ask you only this, Paul says. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? How were you saved, Paul says? And they would have said, well, we were saved by faith, Paul, but you know, sanctification's different. We got to earn our righteousness. Look what Paul says. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Paul says, help me understand something, Galatia. You confess justification by faith alone, and by doing that you're right. But now starting by the Spirit, do you believe you add to Jesus' work by your good works? Foolishness. Oh, foolish Galatians. Oh, bewitched, bedeviled, he would say. Bedeviled church. You've been fooled. You've been fooled. The American church has been fooled. Many of you have been fooled. You've been told justification is done by grace through faith in Christ alone. All those alones. But now I'm saved. I've got to buck up and do better. I've got to work hard. I've got to be acceptable to God. Sanctification is not a grace. Yes, it is. If it's not grace, it's not sanctification. If it's you, it's debt, not freedom. He didn't save you from the law so that you would return to good works on your own power. He saved you from the law to the uttermost by His Son so that you might live for eternal life. He who has the Son has been set free indeed. You're free. What must I do to be saved? Jesus, one work. It's not a work. One thing. Believe in me. That's it. That young guy, he's so young, he really believes that stuff. He just doesn't realize what he's about to do. He's about to set people off in the wrong direction. They're going to leave this place and go sin. No. Once you understand the grace of God, even a smidgen, your desire is not to sin. Your desire is to be like Him. See, the reason you think your works are acceptable is because you've never known Christ. Once you've seen Him, you say anything I do is petty and useless. Oh, Jesus, if you won't save me, I can't be saved. And if you won't sanctify me, I cannot be sanctified. And if you won't glorify me in the end, then I can't be glorified. That's our prayer. That's what they should have been saying. Oh, Jesus, how do we ensure that you are our hope and stay? That's what they should have said. And Jesus would have said, just simply rest in me. Come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden. And I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
Is that the description of your Christian life? An easy yoke and a light burden? The natural response is human ability. The natural response is pride. The natural response leads you to death, Romans 6.23 says. But secondly in this passage, we see the work of Christ is all our stay. The work of Christ is all our stay in verse 29. We see it. This is the work of God. Believe in Me. Did you notice that? This is the work you will do. Is that what it says? This is the work of who? God. If you're saved, it's the work of God that has saved you. Your faith is not your faith. It's God's faith. He has faithed you to believe in His Son, Jesus Christ. We must go quickly. The works must be perfect or they will not gain acceptance from the Lord. And our works are not perfect, so our works are useless before His throne. What do we plead? The work of Christ and His work alone. Sinner, if you're here today and you're lost and you hear these words and your question has been, what must I do to be saved? The answer is, God will work in you the faith that is necessary to believe in His Son and then you will be saved. Childlike faith, not reason, not intellect, childlike faith. James Montgomery Boyce, writing on this passage, he brought me to a passage. I never, I've confessed to you I'm ripping this from him because he's smarter than me. He, 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 he is a jewel to the church. was and he is still a jewel to the church. Died too young. Um, so this, I take no credit for this. Don't leave here saying, boy, Carl, that was a genius. <laughs> You'd be fooled. It says he is, but it's good. It's right on. It sums up what I'm saying. Turn to Philemon. Turn your Bible to one of the smallest books in all the Bible. Philemon. I'm going to show you how Paul preaches what I'm preaching to you in a real life situation. So you go home with all the practical knowledge you need about this message. Isn't it funny how God's Word is both theological and practical? See, while you're turning there, there was this man named Philemon who was in Colossa. And Paul, though he had never been to Colossa, it's close enough to Ephesus that we believe Philemon must have been on business in, in Ephesus. And he heard Paul preach and he believed he was saved. Paul probably tutored him a little in the faith and he went back to his home. Paul wasn't in Colossa. The reason we know that is the letter to the Colossians tells us he never had been there. Okay? So the church that was founded in Colossa by Philemon and some other workers was in Philemon's home. He's a rich man, in other words. He had a lot. Big enough house to house the people in the church. Or either it was a real small church, maybe. <laughs> Who knows? Anyway, all he had was God's, right? And he had this servant, at least one, maybe more, but Onesimus was there. And Onesimus 
he wasn't a real good servant. See, he was a lost man. And he was bitter about his service, obviously, because he robbed from his master. And he headed out. He left. He ran. He fled. In that day, a slave that was a refuge, who took refuge in another city when he was found, was returned to his master to be killed. You couldn't have slaves leaving the farm because then other slaves might decide if they weren't punished, I can do it too. Right? And you'd have utter turmoil. They had to kill their slaves when they fled. They had to. No choice. Make an example out of them. So he heads to Rome. Why? Because it's full of rich living. You know, he stole all this money that wasn't his, and so he didn't care if he spent it or didn't spend it, so he went and lived like a prodigal in Rome probably. Spent it all. Got arrested. And there was this old man in prison who though he had been beaten till he couldn't stand upright, and though he had been shipwrecked three times, and though he was despised by his people and hated by the Gentiles and persecuted even unto death and would later stand before Caesar and die, he still preached one message. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And when He met Onesimus in prison there, He said the Gospel to him, obviously. And Onesimus believed. And then Paul trained him. You know, you got a lot of time to train a man in prison. You can't go anywhere. And you can't go anywhere. And there's no TV to distract. And there's nothing going on. You're just kind of there. And so he trained this man. Probably, wouldn't you love to have been Onesimus? Sitting at the feet of the greatest master of the Gospel besides Jesus Christ probably ever walked the face of the earth. He learned a lot in a short time. Onesimus was released and Paul left in prison. And this letter that we're about to look at is the letter Paul sent back with Onesimus. Now, how did he do that? Why, why would he send the letter back? Because I believe it's very it's implicit. It's not explicit. But implicitly, Onesimus must have come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit that he had sinned against Philemon. And he asked Paul for advice. I've robbed my master blind and I've spent all his money and now I'm being released from prison. I ain't got anywhere to go except back to Philemon and he'll kill me. What do I do? And Paul wrote this letter. Now I want you to put on your spiritual mind and be able to see Philemon standing at his gate, seeing in a distance this man that looked like his scoundrel servant, Onesimus. And I want you to imagine Onesimus the fear in his heart because he had no works. He had nothing to plead his case except a letter from Paul. That was it. And he gets in sight and he sees that it is Onesimus and Philemon I'm sure was fit to be tied. Wouldn't you be? And Onesimus says, before anything, I just want to give you this letter. Just please read it before you take my life. Just read it. So he unrolls it to read these words. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus. You know Paul Onesimus? Yeah. I met him in prison. I was saved under his preaching just like you. I can imagine Philemon thinking, yeah, we'll see about your salvation. And Timothy, our brother, 
to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Apatha, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Philemon turns to his wife. Apatha said, come, come here. It's a letter from Paul. We, it's near Paul. We, we got a letter. What does it say? Verse 8. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, Philemon says to you, He's useless to me. But now he's indeed useful to you and me. I'm sending him back to you. I'm sending you my very heart, Philemon. Verse 18, if he has wronged you at all, or if he owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own life. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Say, what connection does this have with... What do we do to be doing the works of God? You see, Philemon is nothing more than a picture for us of God the Father standing there at the gate of heaven Paul, in the role of Christ, sends the servant, the condemned slave, home. Not to plead his good works. Not to say how good he's been or how well he's invested his stolen goods. He didn't have any of that. All he had was a letter. It was his righteousness. It wasn't His. It was Paul's. And when you stand before God the Father, begging and pleading entrance into the kingdom, it won't be your righteousness that you beg and plead with. It'll be Christ's that you offer back to God the Father. And as He reads it, the words He'll read over you are these words, much like what Paul wrote of to Philemon. Oh, Father... Any wrong, that one's done. It's been charged to my account. I'm sending you my heart, Father, on this one's behalf. Credit him with righteousness, and I'll take his punishment. And the response of the Father will be like Philemon's response. Welcome home. You're not my servant. You're my brother. You're my son, God would say. You're my son. Welcome home. So sinner, you got one question to answer. Will you plead Christ and His righteousness? 
or yours? Because the response is totally different. If you plead yours, death waits you. Hell waits you. Judgment waits you. But if you plead His righteousness, salvation, life, and eternity waits. And saves man, when will you quit earning your righteousness and your sanctification? When? How long will it take you? Will you waste another 20 years trying to please God? Or will you simply accept Christ's work as finished on your behalf and live in that righteousness? I'm going to ask you to bow your heads. We've been here long enough. The appeal has been made. The call has been sent forth. I'm pleading with you in these last moments we're together to consider eternity. Consider it. And I'm asking you to look at the cross with eyes of faith. I'm begging you to see Jesus as beautiful and desirable and a treasure. I'm pleading with you that you might see Him as your all in all, your yes and your amen. And sinner, if He is that, be sure of this. Your name is on His palm because God has done all the work. He's done all the work. Saved man, I plead with you. I beg you. Stop the foolish, bewitched, religious activity and rest in Christ. Rest in Him. Knowing that He has done all there is to do. The only work was His work. And now, simply the reward for you. Sanctification. Conformed to His image. Acceptable to God. Eternal life. Well, then what will motivate me to do good? If that doesn't motivate you, you're not saved. That's all I can say. Father, I'm begging you, do the work this morning in the heart of the lost here. Do the work, God, by Your Spirit I beg you, save lost men by the righteousness of your Son, Jesus Christ. Accept them as your children. Awaken them. Give them eyes. Give them ears. Give them a fleshly heart that they might call to you and be accepted. I beg you this morning for the saved man And woman and child, oh God, make us understand that you are our righteousness and our motivation is not to repay, for we never can. Our motivation is simply because we love you.
And You're at work in us. May we say with Paul, finally, may we say with Paul, I am what I am by the grace of God and all that is in me is by the grace of God. There is nothing I've done. I'm the chief of sinners and saved by grace. May that be our plea. May that be our life before a lost and dying world so that they might want us to tell them of the words of life. Oh God, I fear that evangelical churches in our world are so lost that the world laughs at us. They laugh at us. And they don't want salvation because they see how pitiful we are and how tired and beleaguered we are who claim to be saints. God, may that not be our testimony, but may they see Your countenance lifted up on us. May they see Your peace that surpasses all understanding. And may they know You, the one and true God, and the Son, Jesus Christ, through the Spirit. Amen.